just um, in the spirit of blueprint, um, something that happens every time we have a camp is that people fill out the forms, and when it comes to health concerns, they view it as a uh, opportunity um, to say ridiculous things. Um, so this time I thought I might name and shame a little bit. <laughs> Are you ready for this blueprint? Okay, here we go. Um, Max Robinson, health concern. Unhealthily scucks. <laughs> wow. Never again now, eh? Rose Morris? Positivity. Matthew Beard? Aggressive extroversion. Kelly Bell? Marriage. <laughs> Oh, good. Oh, I'm just having the best time already, eh? Um, Esme Pup, uncoordinated. And I reckon Hamish Gobby took the KK. Allergic to Scotty taking the moral high ground in spite of his depravity. <laughs> so good. Oh, my word. So keep them coming, people. Um, Yes, um, so great. Oh, I think I wrote this on the back of a child's illustration. Yeah, that's right. Down there. Um, mm. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, <clears throat> so um, tonight we are going to uh, look at a passage from James two, um, James chapter two, verses one to seventeen. Um, so what I want to do before we get into it is I want to share a little bit of context for this because I think the context of this passage is quite, quite fascinating. Um, what we're looking at, we'll hear the passage in a moment, but what we're looking at is a time of like intense wealth inequality for the Jews. Um, where basically the Roman Empire was like cranking up a notch um, and basically driving people off their land. The landlords were extorting um, poor people. People were being basically swindled. Um, And so there was this huge wealth inequality rising up and people who couldn't get the basics of life and then people who had everything. Um, Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And uh, and so alongside this, you had this group of guys called the Zealots, um, who were basically the freedom fighters and the terrorists of the day, um, depending on which way you see it. And one of their favourite things to do was to sneak through the marketplace with a small sword, and they would come up behind a Roman centurion and slide the sword up under their armour and kill them. So they were basically going around killing the authorities. Um, And they, um, they basically had a field day around the time this passage was written, on the aristocrats near the temple, they just went hundies killing aristocrats at the temple. So it was like quite a full-on time, huge wealth inequality, terrorism, um, looking very similar. Um, There was a revolt in 66 AD around this time that led to a whole lot of Roman guards massacring, like dozens of priests at the temple as well, um, which is pretty full-on. Um, the Roman laws favoured the rich, and they, they, their perception was that the poor were inherently self-interested. Um, so there's just so many parallels here. Um, the, um, the grain, there were grain shortages in Rome, and people were getting fired up about this, and so there was rioting going on regularly. And so basically everything, as we're reading this passage for the Jews and for the early church, is like teetering on the brink, like it's out of control. And uh, they reckon this... this Book, the book of James was written between about 62 to 66 AD. Within four to six years of that, 
the Romans would get so pissed and so over this, they just went through and just levelled the temple. They're like, enough. So that's kind of what we're on the edge of as we're reading this passage. And I hope that brings some, some context to it. Across the book of James, we kind of have these themes that come through. The first of those is the pride of the rich. The rich have got pride and haughty. The second is that because they've got prideful and haughty, they're oppressing people. The third is the poor Jews desiring to retaliate against the, the, um, the rich Romans. And then finally, there is the call of James to wisdom, faith, and patient endurance, not to retaliate, but to endure. So all of that in mind, one other thing I want to just briefly bring as context is um, if you're new here or you're newish to faith, a phrase you will often hear kicked around is this phrase, the kingdom of God. Um, and if you are like me before I came into church, when you hear the phrase the kingdom of God, what you're often thinking about is somewhere we go one day, or it's like a, a, a heavenly realm. Um, and that's not what Jesus talked about. Actually, what he talked about is, is this idea of a new heaven coming here, is that everything here would be restored and made new. So it's not about a place we one day go to. So when you hear them say, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, it's talking about a coming present reality rather than a place we one day vanish off, vanish off to. And because it is a kingdom, it has a king named Jesus, and the assumptions of this, this kingdom are that it's under his perfect governance, that no other empire, no other kingdom works, but under Christ's governance, it can work. So the kingdom is Christ's vision of a world where all creation and its people are liberated from pain and suffering and bondage to decay. And so in that, it's not just a spiritual reality. It's not just an internal thing, but it's a social, a political, and an economic thing. And so what we understand is the people of God is that one day this kingdom will come in its fullness. Christ will bring it in its fullness, but that right now we are responsible to bring about that spiritual, social, political, and economic reality here, which is a place of generosity, a place where the broken are healed, a place where the, the imprisoned are freed, where the oppressed are set free. That is, is what we're called to. So when you hear the kingdom of God, that is what we're talking about. With all of that context behind us, um, does someone have their seasonal guide with them? Yes? Cool. Would you like to stand up and read the passage from this week, James 2, 1 to 17? Sure. It's Lane, isn't it? Got that right. Great. Welcome, Lane, everybody. Yeah. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen to those who are poor in the eye of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the good law found in scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin 
You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbled at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If, if one of you says to them, go into peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Hefty scripture, eh? Mm, so three things I want to draw from this. Conveniently, this passage has three things in it to be drawn from it. <laughs> the first of those, the verse I want to centre on is up front. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Now, initially, I think some of us might struggle to think about where favouritism is something that we do in our lives. Um, we are in a notoriously egalitarian society, apparently, here in New Zealand, where we like to think that everybody has the same opportunity as one another. So I think we need to peel back to the root a little bit of what's going on here. So because these Jews are largely poor, what they want is access to wealth and power. They want access to the source of their oppression. They want access to the wealth that is oppressing them. And I think in this what we see is that favouritism is always grounded in what someone else can give to you. Favouritism is always grounded in what someone else can give to you. For the Jews James is talking to, talking to, these people, the wealthy, may provide them with the wealth or power they don't have. For us in our age or stage of life, we may not be likely to gravitate towards people with wealth or power but I think for us, we tend to gravitate towards those who offer us social or cultural capital. Social or cultural capital. That we maybe don't gravitate towards the wealthy person in the room, but we do gravitate towards the intelligent, good-looking, popular, capable person in the room. Social and cultural capital. And it's the same impulse that we've all had since we were teenagers, right? Is to be a part of the in crowd. Like this thing exists in us since we are little kids. Like it's very hard to buck against the trend isn't it? Think about social media, right? When we look at our Facebook profile, what do we have? We have us in the middle of it. And then we have a series of things which we affiliate ourselves to. So we affiliate ourselves to the brand of Nike. And we affiliate ourselves to the brand of Apple. And we affiliate ourselves to the cause of Generation Zero. And then we affiliate ourselves to a certain celebrity or personality. And we gather to ourselves a series of brands in order that they will say something about us. So the social network, this whole kind of thing, the lie is that it's about connection. It's not about connection. It's about what all these connections and affiliations say about me. It's about what identity I can gather around myself. And this is the root of this favouritism thing, is what will you bring to me? What use do you serve to me? See, in the West, we have become obsessed with utility. Everything must have a use. Everything must be bang for buck. To the point that you hear this so many times in churches where at the end of the night people will assess how the service was based on whether it was worth the two hours that they brought to it. That's a really common thing for people to say, oh, I don't know if it was really worth it. Could have stayed home. We are like obsessed with utility. We want everything to be useful. Our time investment, our money investment. But this idea of utility has crossed over into our relationships. 
So we gravitate towards the people who are most useful to us. That's a cynical and a dark thought, but it's true. And that is the root of favouritism, that we gravitate to those who are useful to us, either in affording us wealth, affording us power, affording us identity, maybe at its simplest level, those who afford us a level of comfort and don't destabilise our emotions in the way that some others will. And so that means that, like the Jews James speaks to, we are naturally drawn to those who are capable, comfortable, popular, intelligent and acceptable. Favoritism is born out of our belief that some people are more useful than others. That's a sad thought, eh? That that's where our consumerist society has led us to, is the belief that some people are more useful to me than others. And then inevitably gives, its, gives way and gives itself to the elevation of the powerful and the further exclusion of the marginalised and the powerless. That as we gravitate towards those who can give ourselves something, we push further and further away those who no one wants to hear from. I remember a few years ago, I, um, I was at a, a cafe and I was reading my Bible and this um, very enigmatic pastor in his 60s comes up to me and sits down and was really, really excited that I was reading my Bible. And we had like a little bit of a conversation. We were on quite different wavelengths, but he decided at the end of the conversation that I had to come and speak at his church. Um, I was like, all right. Um, and I, had, I knew nothing about this church, but I thought I'd go along, you know? Like, it was, I was like 23, 24 when speaking still gave me an ego rush. Um, and, um, and, I, and I so I park out, out front of this church, and, and in massive letters along the top of this church, and probably like each letter was probably three or four metres high, like no joke, it just said, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> oh my word, okay. <laughs> um, so, so I came in... Um, delivered this message and um, felt okay about it and then I sat down after the message um, and then nobody did anything and it just went really awkward and quiet and then someone came along to me and got alongside me and they said um, Pastor Scott are you going to do ministry? Ministry? He said yeah you're going to pray for the people I said oh yeah alright so the next moment they had lined up 30 people along the front of the room waiting for ministry <laughs> And I had no tangible sense of the power of God active in this room. Like, but I tell you, the moment I went up to them to pray for them, I just put a hand out and they just banged to the floor. Every single one of them was just this, either an incredible moment of God's power or an incredible moment of confusion from the people. Um, but um, So this happens, and then at the end of the service, I'm kind of like feeling incredibly awkward about the way the whole thing has gone on. And um, there's a guy in the corner of... Uh, there's a guy in the corner of the room and he's got a bag of glue that he's, he's huffing from. And, um, and, and, and I mean this in, in, um, in no way to, to prop myself up, but I was way more interested in hanging out with this guy than any of the people who had welcomed me to the church so far. So we started having this conversation and I said, oh, I'll give you a ride home. And, and what happened within a few seconds was that three or four people had come in, grabbed him and moved him away and out the door. And I thought, man, how much has this missed the point of the kingdom of God? In the midst of these people that we played our fun games, we threw our hands in the air, we all fell on the ground, but we failed to recognise the person in the room who we considered useless to our cause or not useful to our ministry. We've become obsessed with utility. I think practically in Blueprint, recently we've been naming our reality of what, like, what's good about us and what's not so good about us. And I think the reality is, if we were to do a check 
on the way a good-looking 19-year-old uni student gets welcomed into this church, if we were to, if we were to do an audit on the way a good-looking 19-year-old student gets welcomed into this church versus someone in the middle of their life, maybe from a racial background we don't know well, that they would not be welcomed in this church as well as we would welcome that 19-year-old. That's true. That favouritism does exist in our midst. And I don't know, maybe that lives at the level of maybe we just do not believe that some people are as useful as others. Or maybe there is something we're trying to leverage that isn't quite true. Actually, the vision I had before I um, came up here to speak tonight, now that I see some of the looks on people's faces, was my hands full of these piles of ash. So I don't feel like this is going to be a message where we're all going to end feeling good, I'm sorry. Um, But... um, Favouritism is grounded in what others can give you. It's grounded in whether we think people are useful to us or not. Second thing, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? (coughs) Read that again. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? See, the Jews James is talking to have been trying to align themselves with wealth and power. They've been trying to get alongside those who will be most useful for their cause. And in that, they have rejected and neglected the poor. To go back to our point before, the poor had no use to their movement. Nothing they could give them, so no place in their hearts and their lives. But in this, they missed the crucial role the poor, the sick and the suffering had to play in their movement. See, James says here, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in the kingdom of heaven? Let's go back to that definition from earlier. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to usher in a system of generous economics, of of a generous society, of a place where the the imprisoned are set free, where the blind see again, where the lame will walk? Has not God chosen the poor to usher in that kingdom? (coughs) And here you are trying to usher in your own kingdom through alignment to the wealthy and the powerful. James is saying here that they tried to get near the rich for wealth and power, but while they were doing this, they didn't see the heavenly wealth and power the poor possessed because they had their eyes in the wrong place. James is saying that the poor had a gift to offer them the rich never could have, and in their desire for earthly capital, money, power, and popularity, they missed out on what God was offering them. Mm. Matthew 6, 19-20 Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart is also. You see, James is saying that the poor don't have riches here on earth. They don't have the wealth and the power or the popularity we, we gravitate to. But they have a special understanding of the kingdom which has always lived in the mud and the dust and the gutters of the world. The poor have to keep their treasures hidden in their hearts because they have nowhere else to put it. The poor have to keep the treasure hidden in their hearts because there is nowhere else to put it. The wealthy among us have everywhere else to put our hearts, everywhere else to put our treasure. Think about the metaphors Jesus uses for when he talks about his kingdom. A treasure hidden in a field, a seed hidden under the ground, a lost coin that cannot be found, a lost sheep that cannot be found. Almost every metaphor Jesus uses to describe his kingdom is something you could walk past and not notice. That this thing which is breaking through to liberate the oppressed, 
is the easiest thing in the world to miss. If you live in favouritism, always looking for the shiny and spectacular thing in front of you, you will miss the kingdom of God. You will miss it in the mud and the the dust and the blood and the guts of the earth. I remember um, a few years ago, three or four years ago, Anna and I went to Kolkata. um, And and part of what we did there was volunteering at Kaligat, where um, Mother Teresa set up her home there. And so we were going in the afternoons, and, uh, and most of it uh, is, is very, very normal. One of the things you end up doing the most of is getting um, uh, moisturising cream and just massaging people for like hours and hours and hours who are, um, who are bed-bound. And I remember being there for a few days, and I came across that quote on one of the walls where Mother Teresa said, um, there are coal cutters everywhere, if only we would have eyes to see them. But, you know, Mother Teresa became this, this kind of saint who we looked up to. And her prayer was actually that when she died, no one would really notice. And she died the same day as Princess Diana. And her stuff fell way into the back of the A section and Princess Diana went to the front. Um, and so um, her, her prayer was that we would see our Kolkata's everywhere. That we would not look to go to these places elsewhere to see the kingdom of God at work, but that those places would liberate us to be able to see the kingdom of God at work within us. And I can remember being in this place and thinking, this is really familiar. This place is so familiar to me. And wondering why it felt so familiar. And, and then it came to me, I remember when I was about 19 or 20, my, my grandfather uh, was passing away with cancer, was like emaciated, couldn't walk around. And, and my dad made this decision that... Um, my grandfather would come and live with us. And each day, my dad would tend for probably about 18 months on my grandfather until he passed away. And I had this realisation, there are coal cutters everywhere. That my dad, who is not someone of faith or is coming into faith, was someone who had lived this muddy, bloody, dusty kingdom in my midst and I hadn't been able to see it. I'll see you next week, Scott. See you next week, mate. See, it took an encounter with the poor to have my eyes open to the kingdom alive in my dad. There was this guy, Gustavo Gutierrez, in the 1950s, 1960s in Latin America, and Catholicism arose this thing called, um, called liberation theology. And one of the central things of liberation theology was this crazy idea, which was really controversial, where he said that God has a preferential option for the poor. God has a preferential option for the poor. So he was saying, God loves everybody, but God's eyes are first on the poor before they're on the rich. It was a really controversial thought, but now it's kind of been, been adopted into pretty mainstream theology. Effectively, what Gustavo Gutierrez was saying, that the world shows favoritism to man, but God shows favoritism to the poor. The, 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 the world shows favouritism to man, but God shows favouritism to the poor. And that way our favouritism is back to front from God's. So if you want to know where God's spirit is, he is always prioritising the poor, the sick and the suffering. You see this in Jesus' statement in Mark 2.7 where he says, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I came for the struggler. That's preference for the poor. That's preferential treatment for the poor. So point one, favouritism is grounded in utility. And what others can give to you. Point number two. The poor offer us a gift that the rich never could. Third scripture. 
James says this kind of sucker punch right at the end there. Faith not accompanied by action is dead. Faith not accompanied by action is dead. So we move in this passage from favouritism, looking at the capital of the empire, looking at the use people have to us, to favouring the poor as God does, looking with the eyes of the kingdom rather than the empire. But then James says, you better act on this revelation. You better not do that classic millennial thing where you go at the end of tonight. Wasn't that a challenging thought? Let's talk about what a challenging thought that was. And just how gritty it was. And Oh yeah, I love it. Let's not do that, that it must be action. What does action look like here in Matthew 19.24? Jesus says it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for the wealthy to see or access God's hidden kingdom vision. It is hard for the wealthy to envision the blind having their sight back. It is hard for the wealthy to imagine economic equality. It is hard for the wealthy to believe in an equal society. It's like passing through the eye of a needle. We cannot even envision it. And this comes with a clear New Testament principle, and the principle of Jesus is this idea of mutual liberation. See, the declaration of Christ's ministry in Luke 4.18, which we say round about in the Eucharist later on, is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. You see, as the wealthy, most of us in this room, who are middle class, we have the resources to be good news to the poor. No doubt. We have the power to advocate for the freedom of prisoners. We have the health care to recover sight for the blind. We have the privilege to set the oppressed free. And so James is saying, if you do not use what you have to make this a reality, then your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. Not just stunted, not just limited, but dead. It has shriveled up and decayed. If what has been put in your hand by God is not used for the ministry of liberation, Your faith is dead. The rich have a moral and spiritual obligation to use what they've been given to liberate the poor from their oppression. So the rich can do a lot, but there is something that the rich also can't do. The rich cannot bring good news to our own insatiable longing for always more, more, more. We can't loose our own chains of affluence which keep us spiritually dead. We can't restore our own sight where we've become blind to the spirit at work in others. We can't heal the oppression which is our own inner turmoil and self-loathing. There is a liberation which God gave to the poor in order that they may offer it to the rich. And it is the only place that liberation comes from in the scriptures. It is the only place that liberation comes from. You see, when we encounter the poor, the sick, and the struggling, we are faced with the fact that all the talent that got us our good career is useless in those spaces. That all our money could not solve the problems before us. That all our popularity doesn't mean shit to the sick and the struggling. And that all the money in our savings accounts couldn't begin to fix these problems. And that revelation of our profound uselessness suddenly brings us to a realisation of God's special place for those who struggle, for those who are sick, for those in poverty. 
See, this might be the crux of what James is saying here in this passage. The rich may liberate the poor into food and shelter, but the poor set the rich free from worshipping themselves in order that they would truly learn to worship God. The rich liberate the poor into food and shelter, but the poor set the rich free from worshipping themselves in order that they would truly learn to worship God. And so we return to that caution of James, faith without works is dead. If you do not live to liberate the poor, you will never find liberation and your faith will die. A final thing, a final caution I want to bring to us as um, so I wrap up here. As I think we live in a culture of liberation by association. So I talked earlier about that that social media thing where we align ourselves to things and we have fooled ourselves into thinking that having friends who do the thing means we've done the thing. Or that liking the Facebook posts means we're active or having the conversation means we're really woke. You know? We have fallen into this trap of thinking that talking about something or thinking about something or watching a documentary about something is the same as having done something about it. That's not true. James is saying, if you know, you must act. And now that you have seen, you are responsible. It's a hard word, and I know we'll have many other words here this year and next year that will speak of the grace of God and that God overlooks where we don't do the works, where we fall short, that God's grace is big enough for our sin. But maybe this is a hard pill, a hard truth just for tonight and we need to swallow. That James is saying that faith without works, faith without practising in God's liberating kingdom vision for the world is dead. And Theresa with that. Point one, favouritism and is grounded in what others can give you and whether they are useful to you. Point two, the poor offer us a gift that the rich never could. Point three, our liberation comes as we work to liberate others or our faith is dead. So I want to give you three reflections that you could roll forward with this night out of this pile of ash that I've thrown upon you. For some tonight, this has kind of been the final nail in the coffin for you, of yourself. Where it's like, actually, you've kind of known some of this. You've known it for a long time, and you've been playing around. You've had this conviction on your heart for a long time. You have known exactly where you are meant to step out. But there is a part of your comfort that just doesn't want to let go. And I think God wants to call you tonight to die to self and say, I know what that thing is, Lord, and yes, yes, Lord, I will do it. I will follow you. I want to be part of your liberation. You know, there was this guy, Charles Finney, a big-time evangelist, and he pioneered what we know as the altar call, where people come to the front and receive Jesus into their lives. What people don't tell you about Charles Finney is that you could not come and kneel and receive Jesus into your life without also signing up a clipboard which joined the abolition of slavery movement. You could not receive Christ unless you would also join the work of liberation. And what did Jesus do with the disciples? Wear nothing but a tunic, wear nothing but sandals, take a begging sack, go town to town with nothing, and declare my kingdom is coming. For some tonight, this is just like a pile of bricks landing upon you. And one of the things we have in our culture, I think, is that we read all conviction as condemnation. Conviction's a good thing, it's how we change. And for some of you, you've known for a long time that it needs to change. And tonight, you need to get in front of the cross and you need to say, Lord, I know what you've been calling me to do and I need to change. I need to stop living for the empire and join your liberating kingdom vision.
The second one of those, maybe dialed back a little from that, is Mark 19. You know, we hear about the rich young ruler. And he was asked, give away all that you have to the poor. And it says that he went away sad. Some of you tonight need to go away, go up to the cross sad. That you actually can't do this. Some of you need to sit in your deep and painful conviction that your faith has been dying in the pursuit of wealth, power and popularity. You need to face that. The third one. Is some of you here are actually acutely aware of your own poverty at the moment. Where it feels like to actually get through each day is pretty much impossible. And I think the thing for you tonight is not one of the first two challenges, but it is to know that God specifically has his eyes on you. In your pain, in your suffering, in your struggle, God loves everyone, but his eyes have preferential treatment for you in your struggle, in your pain. It's like a beautiful God who prioritises those who need him most. Jesus shows favouritism towards the poor, towards the sick, towards the needy. And so he is with us when we are in that place. But if we are not in that place, he asks us to go where he is. Let me pray.